on today's episode of This Calling. God took that muscular dystrophy from me and healed me from that. And since then, I kind of just had an overwhelming and abiding sense that this is what I'm supposed to do. Welcome to This Calling, Conversations About Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold. I'm a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. And these are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talked to Charles Smith. Charles is a priest in the Episcopal Church, serving as vicar of St. Michael and All Angels in Columbia, South Carolina. We talk about that muscular dystrophy and how a healing miracle as a boy led him to a life of ministry today here in the Episcopal Church. Here's our conversation. Well, hello, Charles Smith. Welcome to this calling. Thanks for talking to me today. How are things? Glad to be here, and things go pretty well, I think, on the whole. I am recovering from a surgery back on March 1st and stepped right back um, into the swing of things from the surgery into the midst of a global pandemic, which is a first for me. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's a first for everyone. Uh, well, I'm, uh, congratulations and, and uh, on, on the successful recovery from the surgery. Um, did, did you have to take some time off from, from your pastoral duties for that? I did. I had, um, I had late-stage cancer in 2012, had hmm. chemotherapy and surgery uh, for that, and thanks be to God, was cured. Thanks be to God. Um, the surgery left me with scar tissue that kind of kept growing and growing and growing and was presenting a problem. And my surgeon said, look, it's got to come out. And bottom line, you've got some time, but you've got to pick a time pretty soon to do it. So we scheduled it kind of to go between Christmas and Lent and the church year, because that's kind of the least insane time <laughs> to be away um, from the church. And was off for about two and a half weeks. And then things kind of cranked up in earnest um, with the pandemic. And it's like, no, I've got to come back, even though I can't you know, physically go back. There's just too much writing and Zoom calls and figuring out how we're going to do worship online and stuff to to not be back. And so kind of had a mobile command center, as it were, for my house and kind of just charged in that way. Hmm. So uh, where where is your parish? Where do you serve? I serve as the vicar at St. Michael and All Angels Episcopal Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia, that's the state capital, right? It is the state okay. capital. How long have you served there? So I have been here since October 1st of 2016. Okay, so it is uh, April of 2020, so three and a half years, roughly? Yeah, yeah, three and a half years, roughly. Were you somewhere else before that? I was. I was the rector at... Trinity Episcopal Church in Old Town, Portsmouth, Virginia, yeah. which is kind of this kind of bucolic, quaint little 
uh, historic center um, inside a, a larger city in Hampton Roads in Virginia, in Virginia, so kind of southeastern part of the state. Would you mind uh, explaining? I don't know if all of the people who are listening to this know all of the kind of Episcopal Church lingo. What What's the difference between a rector and a vicar? Sure. So when you're the rector, um, it's kind of like having, you're the senior pastor, but it's like being the senior pastor, but kind of like having tenure. Hmm. If you can imagine a professor who has tenure. And so it is not a position that can kind of come or go, um, but it's one that kind of persists over time. Um, rectors are the heads of parishes, and then vicars are the heads of communities that are what we call mission churches, and mission churches are under kind of the direct control of the diocese, and specifically the bishop, and the vicar then serves at the bishop's pleasure. Um, And so I'm the vicar here because my congregation is a mission and not a parish, Um, and I was rector in Virginia because my congregation was a parish and not a mission. Okay. How long have you been a priest? I have been a priest almost 10 years. Okay. So close. <laughs> um, I, was, I was ordained deacon in June, June of 2011. And so, and then ordained priest in January of 2012. And so just, just a little bit short of 10 years. Okay. Where, where did where's seminary for you? Virginia Theological Seminary, just kind of south of Washington, D.C. And then I finished up my last semester, which was definitely the highlight of my seminary career, at Ripping College, Princeton, oh. which is a seminary in the Church of England. Um, it's a private hall of Oxford and about uh, probably six miles, something like that, outside of the city of Oxford proper. It was wonderful. How did you wind up there? Just like a school exchange program or something? Well, it was a school exchange program. My bishop, uh, John Clark Buchanan, and if you've got any spare prayers, please say a prayer for the repose of his soul. He died uh, just a few days ago. Um, Asked me to consider strongly going to the United Kingdom for all three years of seminary. He says, I want you to have a broader experience of what it means to be Anglican and to be a part of the worldwide Anglican communion of which the Episcopal Church is a, is a small part. Hmm. And I said, that would be fantastic, Bishop. I would love to do that. Let me check with my wife. Every good husband should check with his wife before committing to something like that. And, um, and she was on board, and so we started looking in that direction. The challenge was is that in order for me to obtain the type of visa the United, K- United Kingdom wanted me to have, I needed to be able to demonstrate that I had cash or cash equivalents to provide for my upkeep and my wife's upkeep without working in the United Kingdom for the total amount of time I would be studying there um, to kind of wow. qualify for that visa. Now, the seminaries were very happy to help you apply for and obtain the visa, and the bishop was generous and opened up his Rolodex and said, let's make some calls, let's see who we know and what kind of money we could find. And we did find probably thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars, something like that. Um, but we would need to have had like a hundred, hundred and twenty thousand dollars we could find and do it in about 
I don't know, four or five, six months, something like that. And we could not find that kind of money that quickly. And so it was then kind of a search through American Episcopal seminaries. Um, and we selected Virginia with the Bishop's Blessing, went there. And the dean there, Ian Markham, was friends with the dean at the time, Martin Percy of Ripon College, Kudston. And the two of them wanted to get an exchange program going between the two schools. And um, we were willing. And so that kind of just dovetailed and worked nicely. And my tuition and room and board and such kind of just transitioned one for one between the two schools. So it made any visa or other travel restriction issues a lot easier. Well, what was your favorite part of studying over there? What was your big discovery about going overseas? So I think one of the things I love the most about Ripon College Cudston is the tutorial system they use in the United Kingdom. Um, and so I got to do a number of independent studies here uh, at Virginia, which is kind of like the tutorial system where you and the professor come up with a, a rota of readings that you're going to do together. And you do the readings, you write essays, turn them in, get feedback. Um, but I really loved that system because you spend time one-on-one with a scholar who was able to kind of push you farther and harder than you can be pushed in a normal classroom setting. And that is just really helpful, I think. Um, And it allows you to go a lot deeper in a subject than you would otherwise be able to do. And so that, I think, was super helpful and wonderful. Um, The Bodleian Library at Oxford's fantastic. And it's an amazing place to get lost and to go and do reading. So that was awesome. and then Oxford brings in just really top-notch, world-class speakers and guest lecturers that you get to go to and attend as well. So kind of all of that from an educational standpoint is fantastic. Looking back now, I probably value the friendships I have with English priests more than anything else, though. Hmm. Um, because I've got people who are priests in London, people who are priests um, up in York, people who are priests I know one who was a priest in Scunthorpe and is, is no longer in Scunthorpe, sadly. Um, but I don't think he'd say sadly about that. But it's just very neat to, to have those connections and to be able to go every couple of years, finances permitting, and to see them and for them to get to come here to the States and see you. What a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, it's great. How, how did you... Uh, what were the biggest differences that you perceived between the Episcopal Church and the Church of England, Anglicanism in its in its uh, in its mother country? So, I think one of the biggest differences between the Episcopal Church and you know the Church of England version of Anglicanism is the sense that in England they are very much parish churches. Where here in the United States, we call ourselves parishes, but we're actually congregations. Um, and that's kind of a technical difference. I was just going to ask uh, you to explain the technical difference. So in the parish model, you uh, have a parish church, and there are bounds around which the parish is responsible. And so everyone who lives within the parish is your responsibility as the vicar there. They're your people. And you're kind of responsible for seeing to it that they become saints, that they develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so they do hatches, matches, dispatches for everyone in the parish. And so if someone wants to get married within the parish, you know, a match, the local vicar that does it frequently, if someone has gotten married and they have a baby and they want to get the baby baptized, it's a hatch. The, the local vicar does the baptism, whether they go to your congregation or not. Um, and if someone dies frequently, it's the local vicar, whether they go to your congregation or not, who ends up doing the funeral. And the English are really committed to that parochial system and having those parishes. So English priests spend a huge amount of time actually doing weddings, baptisms, and funerals for people who are not really what we would call members of the congregation here in the States. Hmm. In the United States, uh, most congregations see their primary responsibility, this has been my experience, of taking care of the people who are already kind of dues-paying members of the parish uh, or congregation. Now, we wouldn't say dues-paying because it seems kind of crass to think of it in terms of paying dues, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. It does seem crass to think of it that way. But if you think about the way most congregations, parishes operate, uh, we tend to do baptisms and weddings and funerals for people who go to our congregations, make gifts of time and talent and money, um, or their kids or grandkids, right? Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a really different model because I think the Church of England has a broader sense that they are for the wider community than perhaps we do in the Episcopal Church. Mm. Um, and both models bring blessing and, and bring some curse. English priests are, are massively overworked because of that system. Um, the perfect example is Cudston, where I was at seminary. We had a church in Cudston. We had a church in Wheatley. We had another church in Denton. So there were three parish churches that one vicar and an assisting priest were responsible for. Um, they did worship and they did vestry or like governing boards. They would have called it a PCC, a parish consultative council meetings at all three of those churches. In addition to the regular pastoral work for the members of the parishes and then everyone else that lived in the area. But it meant practically that these two priests were running around taking care of three congregations and three buildings and doing the community work at the same time, which keeps them just kind of insanely busy. Um, but I think there's something healthy about the church seeing itself as responsible for the spiritual well-being um, and helping everyone who lives near them to become saints. That's kind of, classic Anglicanism, and I'm a big fan of something called the Oxford Movement, um, where you would take priests and Christians and you would send them in to bad parts of town and they would take an interest in the people there. And sure enough, when the Church of Jesus Christ shows up, things start getting better. Hmm. So you haven't always been a priest. Did you have a, a career before you went off to seminary? I had like a career at, like a mini <laughs> career. Um, I graduated from college, finished college in December of 2004 with a degree in philosophy, and then started the discernment process in the Diocese of Southern Virginia almost immediately. Um, 
the diocese was a little bit broken at the time. Um, they were in the middle of uh, an involuntary transition with the suffragan bishop and then an involuntary transition with the diocesan bishop. Um, and so the process would kind of start and stop, start and stop, start and stop. And it took about three years. So I started the process January, February, something like that, of 2005, and didn't start seminary until August of 2008. And in the interim time, I worked for Geico as a car insurance claims adjuster, handling disputed liability and bodily injury claims. How'd you get into that one work? So I was in the Glee Club at Hampton, Sydney, where I went to college. And Glee Club was like a fancy, old-timey way of saying uh, men's chorus. And had a good friend, Tom Racy. And the Glee Club had a benefactor who is the most generous benefactor in the history of the college, um, who would always be very generous to the Glee Club. And so I had a relationship with him. His name was Ray Bottom. And so I saw him at a football game and we were chatting. I said, Ray, I'm graduating in December. I need to find a good job. My girlfriend lives in the Virginia Beach area. I'd like to live in that area. I know you're from that area. Who should I talk to to find a job? And he says, you talked to Tom from the Glee Club. He graduated last year. Tell him I sent you. Tom works at Geico. He can get you in the door. Hmm. And so, um, did that and Tom got me in the door, ended up being offered a position as a claims adjuster. Um, and it sounds kind of like maybe a dreadful job in some ways, right? Because no one's having a good day when they're calling the car insurance claims adjuster. Like if you're talking to that person, it's been a bad day already. Um, <laughs> I mean, it has been because you've had a car accident, right? Yeah. And no matter what's happening, if we're going to pay for all the damage to your car and we're going to get you a rental car and we're paying all your medical bills and everything. It's still not like the greatest day. Um, but it was actually a really great place to work. Uh, they treated us very well and fairly. They paid us well. Um, and oddly enough, the training I got as a car insurance claims adjuster with Geico was pretty good preparation for the ministry. Um, how so they were well they were really intentional about teaching you how the business side of the company worked and so if you wanted to pay attention they were all about teaching you how that worked because they thought it was important that every associate understood business right mm -hmm. um there's a lot about being a priest that is not just prayers and incense and saying mass there is a, a business aspect to being able to make your congregation, your parish run and work. Um, and so those kind of skills are just helpful. How do you talk to a vendor? How do you deliver, hey, sorry, but we can't work with you guys anymore, type news to a vendor. The other thing that was really helpful is because when you're dealing with disputed liability or bodily injury claims, there is frequently um, some conflict involved in the conversation, right? The other person thinks the claim is inherently worth more than you might think it's worth. And so they gave us a lot of really good training about kind of conflict resolution and de-escalation and how to talk people through a conflict and how to negotiate that. Um, and that's really helpful as well. Sometimes um, in parish life, people are just upset or they're angry and it's not necessarily your fault. 
Maybe it is your fault. <laughs> um, but anyways, they're angry, and there's got to be some resolution to that conflict. Or you'll find you know, a husband and a wife, or you'll find just two friends or whatever who are in conflict with one another, and one or both of them come to you. And you need to be able to sit them down and kind of sit in that uncomfortable place with them and say, let's unpack what's going on here. And let's see how you know, we might get to some resolution that we can all live with. Hmm. In the pastoral dimension of dealing with people right in the middle of, of, a, of a crisis, I guess would prepare you pretty well for dealing with, you know, those phone calls from uh, upset or angry or both. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So your degree in philosophy, why, why philosophy? So um, I, I love reading and I love thinking. And I took a bunch of classes in college. I thought I would probably end up a religion major because I went to college um, on a ministerial scholarship knowing that I was meant to be a pastor. Um, but found that philosophy really, I think, dealt with the big questions of life, big questions of existence, uh, and with how you think and reason through things and present things in kind of a more cohesive and rigorous way um, than a general kind of religious studies degree would. Now, certainly religious studies degree would go deeper into the Bible than you would with a philosophy degree, um, and deeper into Christian theology and thought than with a philosophy degree. But there's part of um, a large part of the society that that does not now come from kind of that Judeo-Christian background. I mean, some of it's in the water, right? Everyone pretty much celebrates Christmas and gives gifts at East at uh, Christmas, um, and you know, every little child wants the Easter Bunny to visit his or her bedroom <laughs> um, come Easter. But kind of the the stories of the Bible and stuff, I think, don't form us in the same deep way that they used to. Perhaps you know, and maybe they didn't ever really. You know, I've only been alive thirty-seven years. So I can't say too authoritatively much longer ago than that. Um, but certainly now it strikes me that people are less formed or not super well-formed or literate about the Bible. And yet they have the same kinds of difficult and hard spiritual questions. Why am I here? What am I meant to do? Where do I fit in with this? Um, one that's very hard to answer and uh, that troubles a lot of people. And it's probably troubling people now, right in the middle of the pandemic, is why is it that a God who loves us and who wants good things for us and who is all powerful allows bad stuff to happen? Right? Yeah. And the kind of technical term for that is theodicy. So, how do we explain this in light of a God that does love us and wants what's best for us? And could stop bad stuff if he wanted to. Um, does it mean God doesn't love me? And that's why bad stuff happens to me. So maybe he loves you, but not me. Does it mean God doesn't care, even though we'd like to think he does? Uh, 
And so philosophy really, I think, is a great preparation for the ministry in that it helps you learn to kind of think through and read through those types of problems. Um, but I would argue that philosophy is a great degree for any type of career field that you could go into. Um, Mark Height, is a professor at Hinton Sydney, would always say that philosophy degree will not get you your first job, but it will get you every job after that. <laughs> what do you think you meant by that? So, you know, Geico, Microsoft, Google, Apple, whoever you're going to apply to work for um, is probably not going to be super excited about a philosophy degree at first because this doesn't seem terribly practical. And I don't know how this fits into making widgets or managing people or writing software or manufacturing iPhones or whatever it is that we do. Um, But what philosophy does is it teaches you to see a problem, see a challenge, think deeply about it, and then reason your way to the right solution. That skill, that critical thinking skill, is super valuable and important no matter what career field you're in. So if you're in theology and the ministry, you definitely need to be able to do that. But if you are manufacturing airplanes down in Charleston at the Boeing factory and something keeps breaking on the line over and over and over again. It is helpful if one of the guys working the line or a shift supervisor can look at that and reason his or her way to what the heck's happening and why does this keep breaking? How do we fix that? Right? Um, Same thing if you're in accounting or I mean medicine, any field you could think of, kind of that skill is really valuable uh, and important. Hmm. So did you grow? But it won't get you your first job. (laughs) (laughs) So you said you went to college on a ministerial scholarship because you knew that you were called to be a pastor. I did. At at what age? It, was this when you were, you know, 17, 18? You knew that you were going to be a pastor? No, ever since I was a little boy. No. So I well, let's go to, all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. So when I was a little boy, I was in kindergarten <laughs> at Mount Pleasant Elementary School in Roanoke, Virginia. And it's a small little school. And I had um, a lady who was my kindergarten, like, main teacher. Uh, Miss Walthall, and then her husband, Mr. Walthall, was gym teacher. And the Walthalls called my parents one night. So we need to talk to you about your son. There is something going on with him. Right? So my parents probably thought the worst or whatever. And, uh, and they're like, he doesn't walk and run quite like the other kids. There's something not right here. We don't know enough to say exactly what that is and, and why it's not right. But he should go to the pediatrician. You should tell him that we've seen this and have him look at the boy and see what's going on here. And so my parents got me an appointment with Dr. Bowles, who was my pediatrician. Lovely man. Loved him, except it was time to go to the lab because I knew that meant I was getting stuck so that they could take blood. Um, Went to see Dr. Bowles. Dr. Bowles poked, prodded, probably made me go to the lab and get some blood. And... And looked at my parents and said, you know, there is something going on here 
I am not the man that can help you with this. There's another man in town. He's a neurologist. You ought to go see him. He is probably a man that can help you with this. So we went to go see the neurologist. I can't remember his name um, in Roanoke, Virginia. And he poked and prodded, probably made me get blood done at the lab and said, well, yeah, there's something pretty, pretty major and big going on here. But I'm not the man that can help you with this. There's another man, Dr. Miller, at the University of Virginia. Dr. Miller's a man who might could help you with this. You should go see him. We got an appointment sometime later to go see Dr. Miller at UVA. Dr. Miller pokes and prods and examines me. And then he says, now, boy, I want you to get up and walk for me. But hold on, I've got to go get someone. He leaves the room and gets a student, a medical resident. And he says, all right, boy, walk. And so I stand up best I can. And I'm holding on to the railing. Um, in the hallway and kind of tottering along using the railing to help support me and hold me up. And Dr. Miller points at me and says, now that is Lingirdle's muscular dystrophy. Make a note of the walk. You will see it again. And he sends the student doctor away, sits my parents and I down, and he explains to us what Lingirdle's muscular dystrophy means. So a lot of people may know Jerry's kids, right? Mm -hmm. And the telethon that he used to run for Muscular Dystrophy Association. Um, Lingirdle's muscular dystrophy is a part of the disease group that he raised money for. And Dr. Miller explained to us the way Lingirdle's muscular dystrophy works. He says, you've got the function you've got right now, and that's great. He says, now, someday you're going to sit down in a chair and you're going to go to stand up. and then." It'll be like someone flipped the light switch. You'll realize that standing up by yourself is just not something you do anymore. Well. Because then sometime later, you're going to lay in your bed one night and go to sleep. And you're going to wake up the next morning. And just like someone flipped the light switch, you'll realize that sitting up by yourself is not something you do anymore. It affects the arm and leg and core muscles of your body. It does not affect your heart or your ability to breathe. And so it will not kill you like some other forms of muscular dystrophy. Now, how long will this take precisely? I don't know. It could be a few years. It could be a few months. Only God's going to know for sure how long that's going to take. Is we can give you physical therapy, and we can give you some medication for the pain that it's causing. But those things are not going to fix it, right? Yeah. I'm not really a man that can help you. But there's another man you should go see, Dr. Leshner, the Medical College of Virginia. He's doing studies. He might be a man that can help you. We go see Dr. Leshner. Dr. Leshner electrocutes me with these long needles through my legs. It's called an EMG. And they confirm what Dr. Miller thought. And the physical examination confirms what Dr. Miller thought. And they cut a bit of muscle out of my left bicep. 
to study under a microscope. And Dr. Leshner sits down with us. He's a very generous, kind man and says, you know, I can give you physical therapy and I can give you medication for the pain. These are not going to fix this. I'm not really a man that can help you either. And there were no more men to go see. And so we go home and we're devastated. Um, And our pastor, Freeman Hammock, from a little Nazarene church in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, calls and checks on us and says, well, I want you to come to church on Sunday. Because I don't know a man who might could help you, but I know the man who will help you. And so we go to church. I can basically not walk at this point. And my dad carries me forward and places me kneeling in front of the altar. And Freeman Hamrick takes oil and anoints me with it and prays over me in Jesus' name. And I walk back to my seat. And it's more than 30 years later. And um, one of my hobbies is hiking. And so I walk a lot. I'm a really good walker. If you see, look me up on the internet and see a picture of me. I'm not the most athletic man that's ever lived by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm a darn fine walker. Uh, And God took that muscular dystrophy from me and healed me from that. Um, And since then, I kind of just had an overwhelming and abiding sense that this is what I'm supposed to do. Wow. What a story. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Thanks be to God. So you grew up Nazarene? So uh, Nazarene and then Southern Baptist. And then when I was probably 17, 16, 17, something like that, I was really involved in the youth group at my Baptist church in in Farmville, Virginia. We'd moved to there. And the youth minister's husband said to me, because I asked all these kind of like impertinent questions about why do we think that's the case? And why can't we drink? And what's wrong with, you know, all these questions. And, And he said, you know, if you're going to ask questions, you should leave and not come back. Hmm. Which is not, come to find out, the most effective way to evangelize people. <laughs> um, like it yeah, just doesn't work, might, come to find people out. People might take you up on that offer. I did take them up on that offer, right? And so kind of took a little pause on going to church. Um, started college at Hampton, Sydney, and was looking for a church to call home and a church in which I might could get ordained. And Hampton Sydney is a Presbyterian college. And so I met with the Presbyterian pastor, uh, Reverend Willie Thompson there, delightful man, and also started reading Calvin's Institutes on Religion. Because who doesn't join the Presbyterian church by reading John Calvin? And in doing that, was really bothered by the doctrine of election that Calvin has. And so I won't go too deep into that because it's probably too technical and it'll war people to tears. <laughs> but essentially what it is, it will, right? But essentially Calvin says that God creates people 
And some people God predestines or elects to eternal salvation and joy with him. Now, that was the end of what Calvin would say about it. But being a good philosophy major I was, if you think about it just a little bit, if God predestines some people for eternal salvation and life with him and predestines everyone else necessarily so, not for that, because they weren't predestined for that, and the other choice is eternal damnation, that means God created most people so that they could be damned. And the technical term for that is double predestination. And almost no one, except maybe Zwingli and a couple of other like really hardcore people from the Protestant Reformation, would hold double predestination, right? But if you think election, kind of the Calvinistic election is the case, I don't see how you get out of the very not nice second half of that. Hmm. And to me, that is incongruous with God's love and the work of the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? I mean, Jesus says, I am, in John 14, I am the way, the life, the truth. Not, well, I'm the life for a couple of people, but for reals, most of you, not a chance. (laughs) Or the way or the truth for a couple of people, but for reals, not for most of you. No, Jesus comes to save the world. Um, He comes for everyone. Right? And so um, I thought it would be disingenuous to go into the Presbyterian church knowing, like, straight away that one of the things that is central to them, I don't hold and can't hold. Now, Reverend Willie said, look, it's not that big of a deal. No one really believes that, anyways. It's like, but I mean, like, read your documents. Like, you're meant to believe that. Um, And a friend of mine invited me to go to an Episcopal service and said, Try it out. I'll buy you lunch afterwards. If you hate it, it's only an hour. And so kind of a ringing endorsement. I decided to go with him one Sunday. And as we pulled up, um, he said, oh, I forgot. I'm the crucifer today, uh, which I didn't had no idea what that meant. <laughs> but it meant he was not going to be sitting with me in church. Mm-hmm. I did understand what that meant. And then they handed me like this trifold bulletin with an insert that was like super complex and hard to use. And they handed me a hymnal, and I think I got a prayer book and a Bible. I mean, just so many books and pieces of paper. And I was like, well, I'm already kind of hating this. This is going to be so hard to manage. Um, and there was a couple in their 80s, Les and Kathy Andrews, who said, why don't you sit with us? And let us take your bulletin and all those books from you. And we're going to hand you the right thing on the right page at the right time. And we're going to tell you when we're going to stand up and when we're going to sit down and when we're going to kneel. When we're going to make the sign of the cross over ourselves. And you're just going to like it so much more like this. Hmm. And they really shepherded me into that congregation. They were so good at that. Um, and I kept coming back and kept sitting with Les and Kathy Andrews. So, you know, 18, 19-year-old me. Uh, week after week, we'd go to church and sit with this couple in their 80s um, because they took an interest in me and loved me. And we had a retired priest, Father Bill Blotner, who was in his late 70s or early 80s at the time, who did Canterbury College ministry on a volunteer basis to the congregation. He got my contact details and made sure I showed up for Canterbury um, 
college ministry events and stuff, and also really helped shepherd me into that congregation. Um, and so those people at John's Memorial Episcopal Church just did a great job of making you feel loved and wanted, which is kind of the first rung of the ladder for evangelism or discipleship for people, isn't it? Hmm. It is, yeah. So that's how you became Episcopalian. That is how I became Episcopalian. Was it that easy? Did you did you feel any uh, um, friction along the way? Did anyone give you a hard time? Uh, so Episcopalians were lovely people for the most part. Um, I think one one of the sins that we probably have as a people <laughs> is that we I mean, we do right. We tend to beat up on other Protestants, especially like Baptist, Nazarene more conservative and or fundamental Protestants. And that probably is just sinful. Like anybody you slice it. Um, yeah, Jesus great wishes that we all might be one as in the father is one and like beating up on people doesn't help with that. Um, and so maybe a little bit of friction from that, but Johnson Moyle was a really good congregation of a parish to be involved in. And then when I moved to Virginia beach, um, I was just lucky enough to find a really good congregation in Church of the Holy Apostles, which is actually a Roman Catholic Episcopal congregation in Virginia Beach to be a part of. And they loved my wife and me and, and treated us great and, and told us a lot about following Jesus. It was fantastic. And the rest we've already recounted. Yeah, and the rest is history. So what is the... Uh what is the your favorite part of of your work as a as a parish priest? So my favorite part, I think, is definitely the preaching, teaching, and celebrating of the sacraments. Um, I think that is such a such an integral part of of following Jesus and becoming a disciple, and it it's how it works, you know. Um, and so I love those aspects of it, and I think I think I like to think at least that I'm a pretty good preacher and teacher. Um, and the sacraments is where we encounter Jesus in kind of a visible, tangible way. I think it's the readings coming up for the next Sunday or the Sunday after that. You've got the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, right? The gospel story, and it's just after Easter, and Jesus is walking with them. But they don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. And then he sits down. He takes bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it. It sounds just like the Eucharistic prayer we say each week in the Episcopal Church. And in that meal, that breaking of the bread, they recognize who Jesus is and they see him. And the other kind of beautiful thing about the sacraments is, is that in and through them, we receive Jesus Christ, body and blood, soul and divinity all that he is and has to offer into ourselves. And we are transformed into the body of Christ in the world. So conversely, what's the bit that drags you down the most, the bit that provides the most, uh, shall we say, spiritual challenge? Hmm. Um, so I think right now, uh, just in the middle of the pandemic, the, the most challenging part is 
is looking at the budget for my preschool, looking at the budget for my congregation and figuring out how on reduced income we are going to be able to hold on to our staff and, and take care of them and how we are going to be able to love our families and take care of them uh, in the midst of all of this, right? Because it's just uncertain and we don't know exactly how long it's going to last or how long it's going to be before life gets back to normal and before things get going again. Uh, and so that's been draining for me as of late, for sure. I think in general, uh, the least nice part is kind of meetings and things that kind of go on, but don't have much of a point. And like everyone probably has those at work. Like that's just a part of working, I think. Um, but there's just so much more better stuff we could do with our time than that. Um, so I try to keep those to a minimum. What advice do you have for someone feeling a, a calling to uh, priesthood or parish ministry in the Episcopal Church? So one is you need to, if you have a spouse, he or she needs to be 100% on board with it. Because the church says they're hiring you, and they are, and you will go there as their priest and pastor. But secretly, your spouse is going to be a big part of that as well, and it's going to be a big part of your success or failure in the ministry. So it's important that they're on board. Um, I think it's also important that you and your spouse really pray about that a lot um, and make absolutely certain this is what you're meant to do. And if there's anything else you can do instead, you should go and do that. And if there isn't, then you should go ahead and go forward and just kind of run headlong into it. Because if you put it out on a spreadsheet and chart it up, the math doesn't work. There will not be enough money to pay rent and tuition and everything else in seminary. Um, and yet, somehow, God will find just the right amount of money that you need when you need it. Um, if you look at the career track, it's insane. It doesn't make any sense. Um, there are probably not enough full-time stipendary jobs, uh, especially in the midst of the pandemic. And yet somehow uh, God looks after you and you find the right parish to be at at the right time. Do the work he would have you to do. So it doesn't look like it's going to work out frequently. And yet somehow, if you do what God tells you, it does. And so to really learn to trust and to kind of live into that. And the other biggest tip, I think, is if you are not already someone that prays the daily office every day, you totally need to become someone that does pray the daily office every day. Um, daily office is kind of the heart of Anglicanism, but basically it is a regimented way in which we talk to God every day. We listen to God every day, and we engage with Holy Scripture in a regimented way every day. If you do it faithfully, every 30 days you'll read the entire Psalter and pray through it, and every two years you'll read the whole Bible and pray through it. Um, it will shape and change who you are, and it will give you the strength to, to trust when it does seem like things might not work out. Um, caveat on that, daily office is hard to get started. Like, you just have to make a commitment to it and do it for a month. 
But once you get it started, it's it's so wonderful and gives so many blessings that it's worth it. Excellent. And uh, I agree. <laughs> the daily office is uh, uh, an anchor. Um, yeah. And yeah, occasionally I run into uh, priests um, in our church who say that they uh, they don't pray the daily office. You know, because they choose not to. I mean, there there are people who um, tell me that they intend to and they try to, but you know, for one reason or another, they just have trouble um, fitting it into their lives. And and I understand that, but that that well, I've heard that there's a road paved with good intentions. <laughs> but it's the people who don't even try, and I just think, but 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 how. <laughs> How do you do it? Yeah, the essence of of our life as Christians is so thoroughly grounded in the Scripture. If you know, if you're not praying the daily office, then then how else are you praying the Bible? How else are you letting yeah. uh, uh, the Holy Scripture speak to you? Yeah, yeah, and it's a different if it's it's a different mode than just Bible study. Because I do both. I sit down with a passage and commentaries and a dictionary sometimes, and I try to figure out what's going on. But it, that's very intellectual. That's very heady. Mm. And then kind of, you know, dovetailing with that or as a completely separate practice, I just let God talk to me through Scripture without trying to like figure out what the social dynamics of first century Jerusalem were like. I just say, yeah. you know, God, speak to me through your holy word. Two very different approaches. I actually have a different Bible I use. Oh. Um, I've got a new international version every day, every man's Bible that I use for reading the daily office. Mm -hmm. And I love it. And I have an NRSV study Bible that I use for Bible study, right? And it's got notes and, and little things about the Greek and the Hebrew that I've written in the margins. It's just a completely different thing, doing that kind of Bible study versus just letting God talk to you through the Scripture. Yeah. Um, but I think it was St. Augustine, but it could have been Thomas Aquinas, who said that they had so much to accomplish that they couldn't do on less than eight hours of prayer a day. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So I'm convinced that we do what's important to us and we invest our time in those things that we think are important and the things that we just don't think are important. We never manage to get around to. Yeah. But pray the daily office is so important. You should totally do it. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if Episcopalians listening to this know that we actually have uh, different versions, different translations of the Bible that are approved um, for our use. I think in a lot of places we go, if you if you go to your typical Episcopal Church service, you wind up hearing from the New Revised Standard Version, because that's the most common. Uh, but we actually have um, like a dozen or so different uh, translations of the Bible that are authorized for use in public worship and of course when it's not public worship you can use whatever translation of the bible you want but uh the yeah. niv the new international version that you mentioned is one of those it's approved uh for use my um 
my kind of devotional Bible that I use for uh, Lectio Divina, which is kind of a sacred, prayerful, uh, uh, contemplative reading of Scripture. I use the New Jerusalem Bible. Um, oh, it's one of my favorites. Just there's something about the language in it. It's beautiful and yet down to earth. Like it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it it feels very grounded to me, which is where I want that contemplative prayer to be. Then, of course, we've got, you know, the King James Version and uh, the original Anglican uh, um, Bible translation. Well, it's not the original one. There were ones that came before it, but that was a very Anglican compromise uh, translation. Uh, Anyway, so there's, yeah, there's a, a variety of different translations that we've approved the most recent one being the Common English Bible in 2012, which I think that was that effort was mostly driven by the uh, United Methodist Church, I think. So the CEB is the newest uh, yeah. Bible translation available, and I like that. I've used that for a couple of uh, like a couple of the readings for the Easter Vigil, just because it's a, a little bit more colloquial without feeling too sloppy, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Um, and I like the Easter Vigil to feel like storytelling, um, to feel like a kind of, you know, we're sitting around a campfire uh, outside the tomb in the dark, and everyone's kind of sharing their favorite uh, story from from the salvation history. So I like mm-hmm. it to have, I like those translations to have as conversational a feel as possible. Um, do you know what's the th- the best translation of the Bible, Chris? What's that? The one that you'll read and use. <laughs> that's true. Amen. Like Eugene Peterson's The Message, I would never say that's a great scholarly translation of the Bible, because it's not, right? It's a paraphrase of the Bible. Yeah. But if The Message is a Bible that you'll read and use, it's actually a great translation. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, it's it's maybe the best translation if it's the one you'll use. Mm. Um, yeah. I agree. All right. So, what's your recommendation for something fun? Let's get let's get off this uh, this serious Bible talk. Let's talk about uh, music or a movie or a, a TV show or something that you're you're reading for fun, or reading, listening to for fun. So, something you should definitely check out for fun uh, that I really enjoy is a band from Winnipeg called The Weaker They Ends. The Weaker They and they. Okay. The weaker they end. They're not that popular, truth be told. Um, they're Canadian. Like, they're really popular in Canada and, you know, kind of a cult classic in, in the United States. And they do what they call Canadian power pop. <laughs> um, founded, yeah, it's awesome, right? Founded by a couple of guys, uh, three guys from the band Propagandi, um, which is kind of a, a hardcore punk band from Winnipeg. And then these guys are a bit softer, but the, the head writer and front man, John K. Sampson, is a lyricist and just a magician with words. And so uh, the week of the answer, totally worth checking out. That four or five albums and are on hiatus now, um, but all their back catalog, definitely worth listening to. And Sampson's solo stuff, which he plays with, I think, three members of the band anyways, um, also definitely worth checking out and listening to. Hmm. All right, the weaker thans. I will look that up and put a link to it in the show notes to this 
episode, uh, along with however people can get a hold of you, Charles. How can people get a hold of you? Are you on Twitter? Or? So I am. I am on the. I am on the Twitter. Okay. Um, at Saul at Luchem, S A L E T L U C E M. I'm also on Facebook, and to find me there, just search for at Saul S A L E T L U C E. Um, that is a, a little side project I do where I try to produce kind of easy to digest short videos that talk about how regular people can um, become good friends with God, which is what I think the heart of becoming a saint is about. It's about reclaiming and developing, rekindling that friendship with God like Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Um, and you can visit me on my website. Saul at Luchem.org, S-A-L-E-T-L-U-C-E-M.org. All right. I didn't know about that. So that's, uh, that's exciting for me to pick up. Thank you. I'm definitely going to put a link to I'm looking at the, at the page right now. It's a beautiful picture uh, of uh, some, I'm guessing, Pacific Northwest fir trees or something like that. With the- it is. I w- it's like a lifelong dream to get to take a trip and hike and camp out there. Yeah. So someday. Um, and a huge shout out to my wife, Chrissy Smith, who is a big part of making it look nice huh. um, and function. <laughs> All right. Well, Charles, thank you for uh, joining me today and uh, in in our mutual quarantine coronavirus bunkers. Uh, and I hope you stay nice and healthy. And thank you for sharing your life story, your vocation story uh, with me. Thank you much, brother. Be well. Well, thank you for listening to my conversation with Charles Smith. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with him, be sure to look in the show notes for links for ways to reach him on all the social media. You can reach me on the social media on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods and on Facebook. Look for the page for Apple Tree Podcasts. The other podcast that I'm currently producing from Apple Tree Podcasts is called Notes from Norwich. And I'm getting together with my friends J.N. and Marguerite, and we are reading together and talking about The Revelations of Divine Love by Dame Julian of Norwich. So find out more on the Apple Tree Pods uh, Twitter account or Apple Tree Podcasts on Facebook. The intro music for this is called Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that's playing in the background right now is called St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.